0: So the very beginning of the story, we find this man, he's an expert of the law, and he's going to come to Jesus, and we know Luke kind of gives us some insight into what's going on in this guy's heart, is that he comes to Jesus, and Luke said he is coming to test Jesus. And here's what we need to know about experts of the law, okay? The law that he was an expert in was called the Torah, okay? This was the Israelite law of living, their law of faith, their law of their religion. It's what we call the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, that was the Torah. And if you were an expert in the law, this guy would have had Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized. He could like say it to you word for word. How many of you guys, you guys have all done that, right? You guys can all quote the Pentateuch. Like, no way. Like this guy was seriously devoted to the law of God. He was an expert in the law. But beyond being able to quote word for word what the Torah would have said, He also knew all of the oral traditions about what the law was really about. You see, for about the last 500 years before Jesus came, all of these different experts in the law and different sects of religious leaders, they had been striving to further translate the law so it would be more applicable to everyone. And so what this meant was they would take a command like, hey, observe the Sabbath and don't rest on the Sabbath or don't work on the Sabbath and rest. And they would say, well, what does it mean to work? And they would start breaking it down bit by bit by bit and say, well, working is when you go this far from your house or if you lift this much weight and they would qualify it all the way down. And experts of the law in Jesus' day knew what the rabbis before them had said about that, but they also knew what the rabbis before them and the rabbis before them and the rabbis before them. And they studied not just the written law, but also the oral traditions of the law. And they knew it down to the letter of what everyone had said it meant to follow the law of God perfectly. So this guy comes to Jesus And he comes to Jesus, not as one truly searching and truly trying to find hope and life. He comes testing Jesus, saying, hey, do you really know the law? And he fires off this question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And right here, this first question, we get a little glimpse into where this expert of the law is missing it a little bit. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. But Jesus answers this question. He knows he's an expert in the law. He's not gonna take his bait. So many, we do this, right? We will get baited by someone who's trying to test us in what we believe. They're not really interested in Jesus. They're not really interested in who we are and how we live. They're trying to bait us, to try to make us look foolish. And I've done this before. where I take the bait and I get into a big argument or debate with them. Jesus did not do that. Look what he does. He doesn't take this guy's bait. He simply says, hey, you, you've read the law. You know what it says, so how do you read it? How do you read what the law says about eternal life? And the guy gives this answer. He he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was called the Shema. It was the height of Israelite understanding of what it meant to follow God. Deuteronomy 6 would have said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. So he quotes that to Jesus, and he also says, And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And I love this. Jesus looks at him and says, you got it. That's the right answer. You got the right answer. Do this and you will live. And we need to pause right here for a moment because we love when Jesus says this. Jesus has asked what the greatest command is on another occasion, right? And he gives this very same answer. Greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we love that because we kind of go, oh, see, Jesus doesn't quote all the rules. Jesus doesn't tell us how we have to live. He says, hey, man, just love God and love other people, and you're good. But have you ever tried that? (laughs) Have you ever tried to, like, perfectly love God with every fiber of your being, with all of your heart so that every emotion is directed towards God and love, with all of your mind so that every thought is captured, taken captive for the glory of God? With all of your soul so that every longing that you have in your soul is for God. And with all of your strength so that everything you do is done for the glory of God. Have you ever tried that, to do that perfectly? It's really hard. (laughs) And then you add on top of that, oh yeah, you also have to love your neighbor as yourself. Man, that's even harder. (laughs) I can love God because my imagination of him and that he's good. But man, my neighbors, the people around me, so easy to get frustrated with. I think when Jesus says, hey, that's the right answer, do this and you will live. The appropriate response would be like what we see the disciples do in Mark 10. Remember in Mark 10, Jesus starts talking about how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And we go, ah. And the disciples went, ah. They said, well, then Jesus, who in the world can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, what Jesus is setting up here with this expert of the law is like, hey, you want to inherit eternal life. Do this perfectly and it's yours. Go do this. And the answer is, Jesus, I can't do that. It's impossible. Who could be saved if this is the requirement? Jesus is trying to bring this man face to face with his own ineptness and being able to earn eternal life so that he can see that Jesus is what he needs in order to have eternal life. But the expert of the law misses it. Just like all of us miss it sometimes, and Luke tells us that he looks at Jesus, and in order to justify himself, he says, "Yeah, okay, but who exactly is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor?" And you know, it's easy. It's easy. It was easy for me reading this this week. It's easy for all of us to take the expert of the law and kind of throw him under the bus and be like, "Ah, sucker! You missed it. You know, you're just so interested in yourself. You missed it." But don't we all do this? We come to Jesus. We see the requirements of what he says it takes to live a life that is perfectly holy before God. And we kind of go, oh yeah, but how much of that do I really have to do? Man, when I was in high school, I was an expert at this. I understood that when I came to Jesus, I was a good Christian guy in high school, good Christian kid, you know, I was a leader in my youth group. I understood that when I came to Jesus, he said, Aaron, sexuality is something, sex is something that is reserved for one man and one woman in the confines of a committed covenant marriage relationship. But what did I do? I came to him, I said, yeah, that's sex. But what about everything else, Jesus? I mean, where's the line, right? How close can I get before it's actually sex? How much can I get away with? We do this with forgiveness, don't we? Jesus says, Hey, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive those who do you wrong. We go, but yeah, how much do I actually have to forgive? I mean, can I, like, say that I forgive this person and they'll still talk bad about them behind their back? Like, is that okay? Are those, are those two things compatible, Jesus? No, is it not? Ah, We do this, Jesus says, hey, watch out for drunkenness. Don't be given to drunkenness. And we kind of go, well, how, how tipsy is too tipsy? We do this with ethics, right, with our taxes. We're like, okay, I know I need to be honest and give to Caesar, what is due to Caesar, but how, how honest do I have to be on my taxes before it's considered lying or being dishonest? And we do this with mission and with service as well, Right? We kind of say, okay, Jesus, I know you want me to serve others, but how much of my life is really supposed to be given to that? Is it, can, can I just, how about, how about once a year I'll do Kroger Day, and then uh, once a year I'll do Resurrection Life. Is that, is that what you want from me, Jesus? Is that, is, that, is that enough? And I'm not talking to all of you like you do this and I don't. I do this as well. We all come to Jesus, and we ask the same question that the expert of the law asks, well, how much, Jesus, do we really have to do? How much can I get away with and still earn eternal life? And the expert of the law looks at Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? Another way of him, another way to say that is, hey, who, who gets to be the recipient of my love? Who gets to be the person that I'll serve and gets to receive my kindness or your kindness through me, Jesus? I, I don't think Jesus likes this question. <laughs> he doesn't really answer it. <laughs> Basically, what he's asking Jesus to do is divide humanity up into different groups, those who are worthy of my love and my service and those who are not. But I love Jesus. Look what Jesus does. He doesn't come down on the guy. He doesn't, like, bust his chops and say, oh, you arrogant, so-and-so. He he just tells him a story. And we've all heard this story, and I think it's a story that is way more than just the importance of us doing good deeds. So let's walk through this story a little bit understand what Jesus was saying. He starts with this man. Uh, We don't know anything about this certain man. We just know that he was on a road. This man set off on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been familiar to this expert of the law and all the others around that were hearing it. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho uh, was about 17 miles long. It descended about 3,000 feet in altitude. So it was a pretty steep road, and it was lined by cliffs and by caves, and it was not uncommon for robbers, burglars to hide in the caves and jump those who were traveling alone and take their stuff. If Jesus was telling this story today, it'd be like, hey, a certain man was going to fill-in-the-blank neighborhood. That neighborhood that you always hear there's drive-bys at night. That dangerous neighborhood, you know. He's like, oh, this guy was walking alone at night in such and such neighborhood. (laughs) And everybody goes, oh, I know what's coming. I know what's gonna happen. That's what the expert in law, he knows what's coming. And sure enough, that's what happened. This man is on this road and suddenly he gets jumped. And Jesus' language here is not like somebody punched him or hit him on the head and then stole his wallet. They said they beat him and beat him and beat him and left him naked. They took everything from him left him naked on the side of the road, half dead. And after they leave, Jesus keeps going with the story and he says that a priest comes along and he sees this man half dead, naked on the side of the road. In Jesus' language here, he's so specific when he tells a story. He says the man crosses to the other side of the road and walks by him. This man, he didn't just step over him. He didn't just kind of turn a blind eye. He got as far away from him as he could. He put as much distance between himself and this dying man as he possibly could. Here's what we know about the priest. It's interesting that he's traveling alone. You see, when the the priest would come to Jerusalem to minister at the temple, they would travel in a group. The fact that he's traveling alone means that he is probably leaving the temple. He's probably on his way home. This man, this priest, he's a priest of the Israelite people. He is just... Probably finished serving at the temple, ministering at the temple of God to God's people so that they can know who God is. And as he's leaving, he comes to this half dead man and he puts as much distance between himself and himself as he can. So the priest misses it. Then a Levite comes. A Levite was from the tribe of Levi in Israel. Now, priests, all priests were Levites, okay? All priests were in the tribe of Levi, but but not all Levites were priests. You were only a priest if you were in the family of Aaron. The rest of the Levites also served at the temple. They were kind of uh, assistants to the priests. And so this Levite, probably leaving the same temple service that this priest just left, he comes along, he sees half-dead man, same response, as much distance between himself and the man as possible. Now, as this expert in the law is listening to this story, he probably knows just what Jesus is doing. He's thinking, okay, Jesus is now passing judgment on all official Judaism. He's passing judgment on the religious elite of which I am one when it comes to the Israelites. He's hearing this story and it stings a little bit at this point. And he probably thinks he knows what Jesus is gonna do next because the most common sense thing for Jesus to do next would be to say, hey, a priest came and a Levite came and they missed it. But then a normal Israelite came. That would be the, the most common sense thing for Jesus. To say, hey, the religious elite missed it. But the common Israelite got it. But Jesus goes beyond what the expert of the law could even imagine. He says, and then along came a Samaritan. A Samaritan. That's probably what the the expert of the law did. Samaritan. You see, the Israelites had nothing but disdain and disgust in their hearts for the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a people that actually uh, were part of the, the Israelite people. About 400 or 500 years before Jesus lived, see, the Israelites were conquered by two different empires, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And the way that the Babylonians and the Assyrians at two different times sought to subdue the nation of Israel was they took their people, they pulled them out of Israel, and they took them to their own empire. And this is the way that they would subdue them, but they wouldn't take everybody. They would take the really good ones and say, hey, we want these people to be a part of our kingdom and to serve our kingdom, we'll take them back with us. And they left some of the more common folk behind. The Samaritans were among those common folk that were left behind. And the reason the Israelites hated them so much is because they were left behind and what they started to do was to intermarry with the Assyrians that moved in, with the Babylonians that moved in, with some of the Canaanites that lived there. So the Israelites looked at the Samaritans and they saw them as half-breeds, these people that had had muddied up their bloodline by marrying Gentiles. And so there was a, a sense of racial tension with the Samaritans. There was religious tension as well because the Samaritans claimed to continue to follow Yahweh God and they followed the Torah, but then they also followed a lot of the pagan gods that their new uh, spouses and stuff brought with them. And so their, their religion was muddied by paganism and by the worship of idols. So there was racial tension, religious tension. There was also the region that they lived in. You see the Samaritans worshipped Yahweh, but they didn't come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And so perverted even further the religion that the Israelites professed. And so the Israelites looked at the Samaritans and there was racial disgust. There was religious disgust. There was regional disgust. It was just, ugh. They wouldn't even pass through Samaria on their way to the northern area of Galilee. And so Jesus has this Samaritan of all people come along and find this half-dead man on the side of the road. And look what the Samaritan does. He sees the man. He has compassion on the man. He goes to the man. He pours oil on his wounds, which would have helped heal them. He pours wine on his wounds, which would have helped disinfect them. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey, walks alongside him down this Jerusalem to Jericho road until he gets to an inn. He takes him into the inn and he cares for his needs. And then notice this really interesting. He He goes to the innkeeper and he gives him two denarii. Two denarii would have been about enough to take care of this man for about 24 days. He says, hey, here's here's some money. Take care of this man. Make sure he has all that he needs. And when I come back through, anything extra you have to do, I'll reimburse you for. This Samaritan responds to this half-dead man with compassion and does whatever he needs to do to make sure he's taken care of. And Jesus looks at the expert of the law. and He says, which of these people do you think was a neighbor to this man? The expert of the law gets it. He says, it's the one who showed him mercy. Remember, this whole story started with this man asking the question, what do I have to do? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to show love to? In the story, this question doesn't even get entertained. Jesus doesn't say, hey, was the beaten up man a neighbor? Was the man that got beat up a neighbor? That's not the question Jesus asks. Jesus' Jesus's question is not about who will be the recipient of our love. Jesus' question is what kind of person will respond with neighborly love to the person in need. The neighbor is not the one qualified by Jesus as the one receiving the love. The neighbor is the one who responds with compassion from who they are and gives love to the person who is in need. You see, the Samaritan is a categorically different type of person than the priest or the Levite. She's a different kind of person. The Samaritan was moved by something that was within him. And that thing within him moved him to respond with love and mercy to this person in need. Listen, as we talk about mission, mission is not about us planning out all of the good things that we are going to do for God. Mission is about us being connected to God. It's why we started this this everyday discipleship uh, journey the way that we did, us and God. Mission is about us being connected with God. And as we are connected intimately with God, he begins to put his heart inside of us so that we begin to feel what he feels. And more than that, we begin to see as he sees. Mission is about us, a people who have the living God inside of us, beginning to see the world the way God sees it and feeling about the world the way that he feels about it. This is what mission is about. It's about responding to what God is leading us into. Not about all the things that we can do in order to make God happy with us. It's a big difference there. The question Jesus longs to answer for us is what kind of person do I need to be? Who do you want me to be, Jesus? Who do you want me to be? Jesus, how can I see people the way that you see them? These questions are not about behavior modification. They're not about just another thing that you need to do, but about submitting myself entirely to the person and the character of Jesus Christ, acknowledging that I bring nothing to the table, and I need help in being the person that I'm called to be. As we talk about mission, as we talk about serving God, we are not ultimately talking about the things we need to do for Jesus. We're talking about who we are to be. This mentality of doing is really dangerous for us. And it's dangerous for a couple of reasons. It can produce um, one of two things inside of us. Then when we start hearing about mission and service, if we have the mentality of doing, it's going to produce one of two things. And us. One, one thing it can produce in us if we're not careful is this, this sense of self-righteousness. If our mentality is on doing, instead of being the people of God, doing something for God, then it can produce this mentality of self-righteousness. This is kind of what the expert of the law had, right? Self-righteousness, so often we, we think that's the same thing as arrogance, uh, but it's not. Arrogance is kind of a byproduct of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness comes from a mentality that, hey, I need to be made right. Righteousness is simply a, a, a kind of the state of being right, of being good, being right, being perfect. And so self-righteousness says, hey, I need to be made right, so I will do a lot of things in order to make myself right. Self-righteousness produces a sense that I somehow can accomplish this with God. I can make myself right before God. And this is what we see the expert of the law experiencing, that he thinks that it is up to him to make himself right before God. This is the way the world treats religion. See, the world looks at religion as simply a system of beliefs, and behavior that accomplishes something for us. That that if I will will pray enough, if I will meditate enough, if I will do enough good deeds, if I will go to a worship gathering of some type enough, if I will read some type of holy scriptures enough, then I can accomplish for myself a sense of inner peace. Or I can accomplish for myself a sense of self-worth. Or I can accomplish for myself salvation, or eternal life, or nirvana, or escape, whatever they want to call it. The world looks at religion and says, hey, religion is about a system of beliefs and practices that accomplishes something for me. But Jesus does not want to be treated as some sort of cosmic concession machine, where we come to him and we punch in the right code, and out of the bottom comes eternal life. C23, you get a bag of Fritos. D41, you get eternal life. This is not how Jesus wants to operate. Jesus does not want us to come to him. Romans 3 Paul tells us very clearly, he says, listen, there is no one righteous before God. None of us are righteous before God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the response when Jesus says, hey, love God with all that you are, love your neighbor as yourselves, and we go, what do I do? I can't do it. Praise God for the grace of Jesus Christ, who longs to work in us, It longs, Philippians chapter 3, it is God who works in us so that we will long to do what He wills for us to do. Ephesians chapter 2 says, it is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace, not by our works so that we can boast. By grace through faith, which is a gift from God. And so the one thing that that a mentality of doing, if we're not careful, it can produce this sense of self-righteousness as though through mission and service we are accomplishing something before God. The other danger is kind of the opposite end of that. One is self-righteous, thinking I can do it. The other one is this, this state where we get really spread thin because we realize we can't do it. Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it, but I have to do it. And so we just take on another thing. I can't do it, but I have to do it. So another need arises and we take it on. I can't do it, but I have to do it. Oh, I'll take care of this. Somebody needs to be served, I'll do it. This person needs to be served, I'll do it. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. it. And we lose all sense of boundaries in ourselves because we have this fear that if we are not doing enough, that God will not be pleased with us. And so we start taking on burden upon burden upon burden upon burden until we spread ourselves thin. Because we're afraid that if we don't do enough, then somehow God's going to be disappointed with us. And God is going to be upset with us. He's not going to love us. What I love about the Samaritan in this story, I never noticed this until this week. See, the Samaritan in this story, he did not lose his sense of the things that he was needing to do. First of all, he did not set out to look for this half-dead man on the road. He didn't wake up and go, okay, got to find someone to serve today so that God will love me. He he got up and he was just going about his business. Uh, Some scholars think that the Samaritan perhaps would would have been like a, a business merchant of some sort. That's why he was not in Samaria where Samaritans live. He was actually traveling was he was on a business trip. And as he's going on his business trip, he sees someone in need. And he does what he can. But you'll notice what's interesting, he doesn't stay by this guy's bedside until he's nursed him fully to health, does he? He brings him to the innkeeper. He uses all the resources he can to make sure the man's taken care of. But then what does he do? He, he leaves. He keeps going with his life. So many times we think, oh, if I get into a mission, I don't have time for life because I'm going to have to do, do and do and do and do and do. But the Samaritan says, hey, take care of this, man. Here's some money. I've got stuff i got to do. i got to go. But I'll be back. I'll come back to check on it. See, on one side of this mentality of having to do everything is self-righteousness, but the other one is spread thin, where we lose our sense of self. I've seen this in ministry and myself. My wife and I were talking about this last night, and she remembered early on in the days of our ministry, we had moved to Oregon, and we were working uh, with, with homeless youth, We were doing campus ministry, and my wife was with a mentor of hers, and Amy and I felt really good about the level of activity in our life. We were doing a lot. And it felt like because we were doing a lot that God must have been extra proud of us (laughs) and extra pleased with us. And Amy was talking with her mentor, and she was just naming off some of the things that she was doing. She's like, yeah, I'm, I'm feeding homeless youth three nights a week. I'm mentoring young women to look more like Jesus. I'm spending the night at an overnight shelter for girls who are in trouble. I'm leading Bible studies for some uh, Asian women who've never heard of Jesus before, and on and on. She kept going about all the things that she was doing, and her mentor looked at her, and this is what she said. She said, Amy, do you ever stop to ask God what he wants you to do? Or are you just doing what you think needs to be done? Do you ever stop and ask God, what do you want me to do? Or am I just taking on the things that I think he wants me to do? And then this is what she said to her. She said, Amy, sometimes in ministry, it's easy to get caught up in doing, doing, doing. But we need to stay in tune with God and step with God. When you hear us talk about mission, I know sometimes there's a holy thing that will stir in you and you'll realize that I'm not living my life on mission. And that is a good thing from God. But the enemy will distort it and he will say, hey, you're guilty before God because you're not doing enough. And what Jesus is really saying is, will you be a people that look like me? And how do we look like Jesus? Ezekiel 36 makes it really clear. He says, my people need a new heart. They have a heart of stone. And God is the one who intervenes. He steps in. He says, I'm going to take your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. It is God that does it in us. In John 15, Jesus says, listen, abide in me. Stay with me. Dwell in me. Be with me. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to be with God. Living on mission begins by being a people who are with Jesus, who do life with Jesus, who do life with God, who press into God on a regular basis so that our doing naturally flows out of who we are becoming as Christ works in us. Does that make sense, the difference in those two? The danger is that we often will approach God thinking that we have to do in order to get him to like us. The difference is we know God loves us and we're shaped on the inside so that doing naturally flows out of who we are. So Jesus looks at the expert of the law. He says, I'm far more concerned with who you're becoming than with what you're doing. Ethos, what Jesus wants for us in mission is that we will learn to feel what God feels. That we will have the heart of God within us. And that we will learn to see as Jesus sees. That when we come across the half-dead people in our lives, whatever that scenario it may be, that we have the heart within us that comes from Jesus that responds with compassion. Jesus wants his heart to live in us in such a way that our hearts begin to beat like he he does. And as a result, we live lives of radical service, radical sacrifice, radical compassion, radical mercy. Not because we're earning something from God, because we are walking in what God is already doing. He's placing opportunities before us. And here's the thing, everyone in this room, all of us fall into, into, into one of several camps. You know, there are some of us in here this morning that we have some people in our lives that God is calling us to be good neighbors to. He's saying, hey, who are you going to be the good neighbor to? And and naturally, we think that starts with us going and doing something for them, but in reality, it starts with us hitting our knees before the Father and say, God, will you help me to see this person the way that you see them? Will you help me to feel what you feel when you look at them? Will you help me to love them the way that you love them? And that God will begin to work in our hearts in the doing for that person will come naturally. They will see that you care. They will see that you love them. And the actions that you do will flow naturally from who you are. Some of us, some of us are tired. Some of us are going, oh, no, not us!" another sermon on mission. I don't think I can handle any more guilt because I'm not doing enough. Some of you are here this morning, you're burnt out and you're tired because you've been working from a place of thinking that you're doing is somehow earning you something before God. And to you, Jesus looks. He says, hey, come to me. If you are weary, if you are burdened, come take my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will give you rest for your souls. How do we we bring this down to the ground? Uh, The goal of every discipleship, right, is to make it practical. Monday to Saturday, what do we do? And I wish I had had something for you to do, but then that goes against the old nature of this whole sermon, right? Like... (laughs) Who are we being? Okay, go do this. But I am going to give you something to practice this week. This has not earned you anything before God. This is a place where we submit ourselves and humble ourselves so we can be in that posture of receiving whatever God has for us. It's just a simple prayer. And you can write it down word for word if you want. You can write down the big idea of the prayer. The big idea of the prayer is this, is that we need God's heart, we need Jesus' eyes, and we need the courage of the Spirit. We need God's heart. We need Jesus' eyes, and we need the courage of the Spirit. And I just invite us all this week, every day, start your day humble before the Lord, not trying to earn anything from Him, but trying to believe and receive that He loves you and saying, God, will you give me your heart so that I can feel what you feel? God, will you give me your heart so I can feel what you feel? Jesus, will you give me your eyes? so I can see the way you see. Jesus, will you give me your eyes so I can see the way you see? And Holy Spirit, will you fill me with courage so I can act when you want me to act and speak when you want me to speak? Holy Spirit, give me your courage so I can act when you want me to act and I can speak when you want me to speak. Let's practice that prayer together this week as God's people and see what he starts to do in us and then rejoice when he starts to do stuff through us as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. We've got communion set up all around the room. Communion is this place. We take this bread and this juice and we're reminded that we have not earned our place before God, but because of the radical love of Jesus, the door has been opened, the gate has been thrown wide open for us to have communion with the Lord. So let's go and take that and remember, I'm going to pray for us. If you need prayers, if you are burnt out and you're tired and you're exhausted, come to the respond banner. We would love to pray for you that Christ would give you rest. If you have people in your life that you know God is calling you to be a neighbor to, don't do it by yourself. Don't do it by yourself. Come up here. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, your classmates, your family members. Let's pray for them together as a family. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we need you. Lord, we forgive us, Lord, when we in, in this mentality of doing, we, we seem to think that changing the world is on our shoulders. Lord, you are the one that is actively changing the world. You are changing people's hearts, changing people's minds, filling their lives, Lord. We want to be recipients of that, and we want to participate in that, Lord. Father, would you come and guide us? Give us your heart, Lord, that we can feel what you feel. Jesus, give us your eyes so we can see what you see. And Holy Spirit, give us your courage that we can speak when you want us to speak, and we can do when you want us to do. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.